Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. We've got a lot to cover tonight. We have to go from King David to Vatican II. <laughs> Just kidding. From King David to Jesus Christ, and we'll see how far we get in the New Testament story. We began in the beginning, and what are we doing? We're tracking all through salvation history the major figures of the covenant line. Remember, we saw that division between the family of God and the family of the devil, the sons of God and the sons of the devil. We saw the division with Cain and Seth. We saw the division again after the flood with Shem and with Ham and Canaan. And we walked that line all the way last time to King David. So real quick, right here at the beginning, let's dust off the rust and, and remember who our major figures are. If you don't remember, you got to go back and review. I do this constantly to keep it fresh in my mind, and I need you to do the same. So, Adam and Eve, made in paradise. They were cast out of paradise, and God gave them two sons. What were their names? And, and Cain killed Abel, and God gave them a third son. And what was his name? Seth. Seth. And Seth's great-great-grandson's name was? Enoch, and Enoch's great-great-great-grandson's name was? Noah. Noah, and Noah walked with God during the time of the flood. He built an ark, and all the people at that time, all the sinful people, died in the waters. And Noah had three sons, and their names were? Shem and Japheth. And which one received the blessing? Shem received the blessing, and Shem's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson's name was? Abraham, and Abraham's son's name was? And Isaac's son's name was? Jacob got a new name, and his name was? Israel. And Israel had how many sons? Twelve sons. And which one was the oldest? Do you remember? Reuben. Did Reuben receive the blessing? No. Who received the blessing? Judah received the blessing. And Judah had his son, and his name was? Perez. Remember? By his daughter-in-law. Uh, not so good. You can go and read about that story. I think it's Genesis 38. Now, Perez had a great, great, great grandson. No, hold on now. It's at that time that the, the line of the kings after Perez kind of disappears during the time of the Exodus. Remember, the kings go underground during the time of the ex or the time the exile find into Egypt. Okay, and Moses leads them out. What tribe was Moses from? Levi, you remember, because the Levites joined Moses at the golden calf, the sin of the golden calf, right? And the Levites become the priests instead of the firstborn, exactly. They traded their firstborn priesthood at the, at the sin of the golden calf. They come back into the Holy Land. You have the story of who leads them back in? Joshua. And after Joshua, we have the time of the judges. You guys better not be cheating off this thing on the board. And right after, during the time of the Judges, you get the story of Ruth. And at the end of the book of Ruth, turn there with me real quick. At the end of the book of Ruth, chapter 4, verse 18 is the key. Because they now have come back in, remember? They're going to now take Jerusalem, and now the kingship can come back to the top, right? Now, these are the descendants of Perez, 
Who is Perez? The son of what? Of who? Judah. Of Judah, exactly. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron of Ram. Ram of Abinadab. Abinadab of Nashon. Who did Nashon marry? Do you remember? Rahab, the harlot. And Nashon of Solomon. Solomon of Boaz. And Boaz of Obed and Obed of Jesse and Jesse of David. There you go. Isn't that great? That's very exciting. The only people I want you to remember here, in fact, from now on tonight, we can skip Perez. We can go from Judah. I want you to remember Boaz because Boaz marries Ruth, right? And from Boaz, we know that his son, Obed, but we could skip Obed and just go to Jesse, right? We'll remember Boaz, we'll remember Jesse and King David. Fair enough? All right. Now, I need you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. Verse 11, and Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? You remember the story, right? And he said, well, there remains the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. Who is this going to be? David. David was a, a shepherd. And David traditionally is associated with what book of the Bible? The Psalms. Very good. Now, Always, 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 we want to read in context. Context, context, context. I'm going to say that over and over again tonight. Always within the context of the story. We know who King David is, so when we read the Psalms, we always want to read the Psalms in the context of David's life. Right? I want you to keep your hand in 1 Samuel and turn with me to the book of Psalms. We're going to find Psalm 23, which many of you know, don't you? Yeah, but you may not have thought about it like this. Psalm 23. Who's writing? David. Yeah, David. And David is a? Shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Imagine a little boy out there in the fields, in the hill country of Judea. Okay, if some of you have been to the hill country of Judea, out by Bethlehem and so forth. Okay, and imagine as the sun is setting, his brothers aren't with him. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though as the sun is setting, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Imagine a little boy and he's seeing the shadows coming off the trees, and he's hearing movement in the hills, and he's praying to the Lord for protection. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Context, context, context. Now turn back to 2 Samuel. The intervening chapters of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel are the story of David growing up. If you're going to read the Psalms, you've got to go read those stories first so you know who King David is. Remember, he was the one that killed Goliath. He fought with Saul. He almost was killed by Saul. So you've got to know those stories to read what David is writing. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we get one of the most famous texts. You've got to know this above all else about King David. He wanted to build the house of the Lord. But Nathan the prophet came to him and God says no. There's a reason why he said no. We won't get into it tonight. But he said no. And I want you to look at chapter 7, verse 12. 
When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son, like Adam before the fall. When he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. Come down to verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision Nathan spoke to David. Keep your hand at 2 Samuel then and turn back to the Psalms, to Psalm 89. I will sing of thy steadfast love, O Lord, forever. With my mouth I will proclaim thy faithfulness to all generations. And listen, where do you hear this before? For thy steadfast love was established forever. Thy faithfulness is firm as the heavens. Thou hast said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your descendants forever and build your throne for all generations. A direct quote from 2 Samuel. So when you're hearing the Psalms chanted and sung and recited during the liturgy, always, always, always within the context of David and his story. And if you're wondering, what in the world does that mean? Where are you going to turn, friends? Yeah, first and second Samuel, aren't you? Context, historical context, good. Now, in second Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, you know the story quite well. I don't have to get into it too much. I'll just read the first few verses. Chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go forth to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with them and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking upon the roof of the king's house. He saw from the roof a woman bathing. Uh, and who was that woman? Bathsheba. Bathsheba. Now, look at verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Uriah was the husband of Bathsheba. Bathsheba. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah at the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And you know the story. He is put at the front of the battle, Uriah dies, and David takes Bathsheba as king. Later on, they will have a son together. And her son's name would be Solomon. Now, David had other sons. So you ask the question, which one's going to receive the blessing? Take a look at 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 21. We have the story of Absalom. And you can see the tomb of Absalom. We go to Jerusalem, you're going to see the tomb of Absalom that David had built for his son. But in verse, chapter 16, verse 21, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself odious to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom upon the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all of Israel. Oh, not too good. Why would Absalom do this? The same reason that what? 
the same reason the story of Ham and the other stories we've looked at. Who else did that? You remember Reuben did the same thing, right? Because in those times, to have relations with another's wife is to take control of his household, to become head of the household. Absalom was trying to steal the throne of his father, even while his father was alive. And so Absalom is rejected. His other brothers who end up doing the same thing to King David are rejected. And Solomon is given the blessing to become king of the house of Judah. In 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 32, King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and cause Solomon my son to ride upon a mule, and bring him down to Gihon. We're going to hear about Gihon a little bit later. You remember the spring of Gihon, the river of Gihon, from the Garden of Eden. One of the rivers flowing out of Eden. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king. So in verse 38, So Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and caused Solomon to ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon and there they anointed him king. Who else rode on, on a mule? Into, that's right. And was anointed king there. And do you remember what the people were crying out? Hosanna to the son of David. Ah, Jesus said, go and get me that ass so that I can ride in on it. We'll talk about that another time. All right. Now, Solomon receives the blessing and becomes king. Look at 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 32. He, this is Solomon, he also uttered 3,000 proverbs. Who is the one that traditionally wrote the proverbs? Solomon did. If you're going to read the proverbs, who do you first need to know about? Solomon. Solomon. If you're ever reading the proverbs, you say, what in the world is this about? My dear friends, stop and go back to these stories in 2 Samuel and 1 Kings and read the story of King Solomon. And only then will you be able to understand what King Solomon was writing about in Proverbs. Does that make sense? All right. In 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 10. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years, and he reigned seven years in Hebron and 30 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat upon the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. We talked two times ago about the importance of Jerusalem and the importance of the Holy Land from the vision of the Jews as the place of paradise. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 6. One of the first things Solomon sets to is the building of the temple. The building of the temple. And notice how the temple is described in chapter 6. Well, in verse 1, it just says, In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. Now notice in verse 38, chapter 6, verse 38, 
And in the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all of its parts, according to all of its specifications. He was seven years in building it. Seven years in building it, reminding us of the seven days of creation in which God established the kingdom in the beginning. And notice, as the temple is built, how God tells them to build it. How are they to ordain it? How are they to make it beautiful? Just look at a few verses with me. Verse 18. Look back at verse 10. Chapter 7, verse 10. The foundation was of costly stones. Do you remember what flowed out of the rivers of paradise? Do you remember? Back in Genesis? Gold and bdellium. It says that precious jewels flowed out of the rivers of paradise. Okay? The foundation was of costly stone. Look at verse 18. Likewise, he made pomegranates in two rows round about. What are pomegranates? Yeah, fruit. Verse 22. And upon the tops of the pillars were lily work. Huh? You know what lily work? Leaves coming out from this post. What's it look like? Looks like a tree coming out, right? Look at verse 36. And on the surface of its stays and on its panels, he carved cherubim, lions, and palm trees. In verse 49, the lampstand of pure gold, five on the south side and five on the north before the inner sanctuary, and the flowers and the lamps and the tongues of gold. When you read the story of the building of the temple, you read of the building of a golden garden. The Jews believed the beginning of the building of the temple was the beginning of the reestablishment of paradise itself. However, all is not well, as our story usually continues. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, the daughter of Pharaoh and the Moabite women, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Sidonites, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. Why, friends? Why? Because God hates those people? Why? Yeah, watch what happens. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. If you have 700 wives, I don't know why you need 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after the other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Keep your hand there and turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Chapter 17, verse 14. You there? When you come to the land which the Lord your God gives you. Remember, this is being written just before they're going to... When was Deuteronomy written? Why was it written? You remember the sin of the Moabites? Stay with me. Just as they're about to enter in. 
Look at this. When you come to the land which the Lord your God gives you and you possess it and dwell in it, and then you say, I will set a king over me like all the other nations that are round about you, you may indeed set as a king over you him whom the Lord your God will choose, one from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not multiply his horses for himself. We just skipped part of the story where it says exactly these things that Solomon did multiplying horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to multiply horses since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not multiply wives for himself, Solomon, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply for himself silver and gold. Solomon is known for being one of the most wealthy men in history. Not good. And so we know exactly what is going to come. Turn back to 1 Kings chapter 11. That's exactly where we were now. That told of the problems with Solomon. And here is the next most important event. In fact, it is the last major event that you need to know about, seriously know about in salvation history. It's the last major event. It is equivalent to the going down into Egypt of the 12 sons of Israel. Look at chapter 11 verse 26. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite of Zerida, a servant of Solomon, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also lifted up his hand against the king. And this was the reason why he lifted up his hand against the king. Solomon built the Milo and closed up the breach of the city of David, his father. Then the man Jeroboam was very able. When Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he gave him charge over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. And at that time, when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, notice, by the way, what it says, over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph, he had put his own family into slavery. And at that time, when Jeroboam went out to Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him on the road. Now, Ahijah had clad himself with a new garment, and the two of them were alone in the open country. Now, this is a good point to remember about the prophets. Oftentimes, the prophets will embody the sin of the people or they will embody the prophecy of what's going to take place. So he puts upon himself a new garment. And the two of them were alone in the open country. Then Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him and he tore it into 12 pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you ten tribes. But he will have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel because he has forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess, and so forth. What's going to happen? There is going to be a schism, a break within the kingdom. The northern ten tribes are going to break off from the kingship in Jerusalem and from the tribe of Judah because of what's going on now. And in the south, only the tribe of Judah will be left. The tribe of Benjamin would also be left, but by this time, Judah had conquered Benjamin. And so there was virtually only one tribe left, the tribe of Judah. And so Judah will remain in the south, loyal to the throne, and the northern ten tribes will break. And we're going to watch that happen right now. Okay, verse 40. 
Solomon sought, therefore, to kill Jeroboam. But Jeroboam arose and fled into Egypt. Pay attention. He fled into Egypt. Now remember, when Israel came out of Egypt, what did they take with them? They took Egypt in their heart. The Exodus was more about taking them out of slavery to sin than it was slavery to the Egyptians. They had worshipped the false gods. And we know the story of the golden calf, don't we? All right, now just pay attention to that. Verse 41. Now the rest of the acts of Solomon, all that he did and all of the wisdom, are they not written in the book of the acts of Solomon? And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years and Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father. And Rehoboam his son reigned in his stead. Now pay attention. You have Jeroboam, Jeroboam, and Rehoboam. Jeroboam is not Solomon's son. Okay? Rehoboam is Solomon's son. Jeroboam is this guy who Solomon had put into power and then the prophet had come and said, God's going to give some of the ten northern tribes into your hand. Okay? Let's watch what happens. Chapter 12, verse 1. We're going to read a good portion of the text here, friends, because this is essential. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. Rehoboam is whose son? Solomon's son. And when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt, whither he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service that your father and his heavy yoke upon us, and we will serve you. He said to them, Depart for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon his father while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, notice these are the old people, right? The wise people. And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he forsook the counsel which the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put upon us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but do lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. And now, whereas my father laid upon you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father chastened you with whips, but I will chasten you with scorpions. Mm. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day as the king said, Come to me again. And the king answered the people harshly and forsaking the counsel which the old men had given him. And he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father chastened you with whips, but I will chasten you with scorpions. So the king did not hearken to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord, that he might fulfill his word which the Lord had spoken to Ahijah the Shilonite, to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. And when all Israel saw that the king did not hearken to them, the people answered the king, What portion have we with David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel." 
Look now to your own house, David. So Israel departed to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who dwelt in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam said to Adoram, who was the taskmaster over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam made haste to mount his chariots to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. And there was none that followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah alone. Do you see what's happened now? The northern ten tribes have broken off. They have followed Jeroboam to the north. In the south, the tribe of Judah has remained faithful to the throne. Jerusalem will be the throne city. And Jeroboam goes north and becomes the king. Now you remember who Jeroboam is. Where did he flee to? Egypt. Egypt. Now take a look at verse 28. So the king, this is Jeroboam, so the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He had gone to Egypt and he had drunk from the wells of Egypt and he had brought Egypt back to Israel in his heart. The northern ten tribes now will be called, and this gets a little bit confusing, but as long as you stick with me, we'll get through it. The northern ten tribes, in the north, ten tribes, will be called Israel. And the southern, well, one tribe, will be called Judah. Israel will get a second name here shortly. It's a little confusing. The king of Israel now will not be the rightful heir to the throne. Does that make sense? Okay. The king of Judah will be. And we're going to have to follow those kings of Judah. And we're going to just see in a few seconds, just like we've seen throughout history, when you break from the covenant line of God, you step out of line with the covenant of the one who has eternal life. And when you do that, it will not be long, my friends, before death comes knocking at your door and the ten tribes of Israel will be conquered and that part of that story will become essential to the story of Jesus Christ. Okay? So we're going to follow that line now. Okay. It's just about this time. Right about the end of the 800... Oh, boy, my hand right now. Right about 880 or so that the Assyrian Empire rises in the east. Out there, we looked at Ur of the Chaldees on your map, if you still have your map. Out there, the Assyrian Empire rises and conquers the entire Middle East and beyond and comes in to the north. And it's at this time, if you have that map, your handout, find the time of the kings. You see 2 Chronicles, you first and 2 Kings. Notice what drops below that. All of the prophets... It's right here in our story of salvation that all of the prophets start coming. They come in droves. It's right at this time. Why? Because the tribe of Judah has basically lost the faith. The kings are mistreating the people. And the northern ten tribes also have lost the faith. And so God will send them prophets. And prophets don't primarily tell the future, my friends. 
The prophets tell the truth. The prophet's job is to come and be the voice of God. And so they will come again and again to the south and to the north. And they will say, stop doing what you're doing. And if you continue to walk away from God, guess what's going to happen? You are going to be exiled from the house of God. Now, I want you to turn to the book of Hosea. Hosea. Now, where in the world is the book of Hosea? You're going to flip with me past the Psalms, past the Proverbs, past Isaiah and Jeremiah. Find Ezekiel with me. After Ezekiel, you will find Daniel, and then you'll find Hosea or Hosea, the prophet. This is one of the prophets that goes and preaches to the north, to the so-called kingdom of Israel. And notice what the prophet does. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. We're going to look at Hezekiah in just a moment. He's one of the good kings of Judah. And the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children with her of harlotry. Why? For the land commits great harlotry by forsaking the Lord. What's he talking about? If you get this point, you're going to understand the prophets. What in the world's going on? The current sin of the north, right? They have broke with the king. Now, was Rehoboam being righteous? No. Even so, you don't break with the covenant line. You don't break with the king. Okay? They broke. And they went and served other gods. And so, what are they called? Harlots. They become harlots because they follow a lord or a husband or a god whom they should not be following. Does that make sense? Okay, oftentimes the prophets will embody the sin of the people. If you remember that point, you're going to get to a lot of the prophets. Okay, a lot of them that are very confusing. They oftentimes embody the sin of the people. 1 Kings chapter 16. Now, it's a little bit confusing, but eventually, eventually Jeroboam, the king of the north, will die. And there will be a little bit of a battle up north for who's going to become king. Jeroboam's descendants are all murdered. Another guy rises up to become king. And the guy that ends up winning, his name is Omri. Chapter 16, verse 22. But the people who followed Omri overcame the people that followed Tibni. This was the battle that was going on. The son of Ginath. So Tibni died and Omri became king. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri began to reign over Israel. Notice how they date it, right? They always date in relationship to the other king. All right? And he reigned for 12 years. Six years he reigned in Tirzah, and he bought the hill of Samaria. The hill of Samaria, which is up in the north, will become the capital city of the kingdom of Israel. In the north, the ten tribes that break north establish a kingdom or a kingship separate from the king of Judah and they buy the hill of Samaria and make that the throne city. Why is this important? 
because the northern kingdom of Israel will oftentimes be called the kingdom of Samaria. And all of the people of the north begin to be called Samaritans. Now, that's not the whole story, and you're about to get the rest of the story here in about three seconds. Turn with me then. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 17. What goes on in the meantime and after this? Look, it's just one bad king after another. All right? There's a whole line of kings in the north and a whole line of kings in the south, and 99% of them are bonds. And there's a phrase that's used. He did not walk in the ways of the Lord. Okay? Or, he walked in the ways of his father. Well, you, you just have to know who his father was to know his father was a bum. Okay? And he did not walk in the ways of the Lord. We've heard that phrase before, right? Abraham walked with God. Enoch walked with God. Adam hid himself from God, right? Alright, but check this out. In chapter 17, verse 1, in the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea, the son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria over Israel. And he reigned nine years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Against him came Shalmaneser, king of Assyria. And Hoshea became his vassal and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hoshea. And look at verse 6. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria. Ah, never again to return. Never again to return. However, the Assyrian conquerors were masters. They had a practice. They would always leave some of the people in the land. They would take the majority of the peoples they conquered and they would exile them to another place that they had conquered. And they would take those people and they would carry them back and place them in another place that they had conquered. Why would they do that? Split them up. And if you don't know where you are and you don't speak the language, guess what? You're not going to be able to revolt, are you? All right. Take a look at verse 24 of chapter 17. And the king of Assyria brought people from, count them, Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Zephyrvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. Five different peoples. And they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them. Okay, and so they end up calling some of the Israelite priests back to teach the people about God. However, there's a problem. Verse 29. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines and the high places of Samaria. So what were these people? They were pantheists. They worshipped the gods of these five nations plus the God of Israel. Huh? Notice when Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well. What does he say to her? You have had five husbands. Huh? And the one you are with, who is she with? She's with Jesus. And the one you are with right now is not your husband. Do you remember harlotry and its reference to the people of Israel? Okay? So it's important because when Jesus goes north and starts speaking to the Samaritans, he's speaking to a bunch of people that have lost the faith. 
the northern ten tribes, and he goes up there to bring them back into the fold, to make them sons of the true God again. All right. We don't have more time to spend on that. We have to move on. The point is that in the year, or about the year 721, the north is rocked. And for the most part, the northern ten tribes will not be part of our story anymore. What happens in the south? Turn to 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 1. I mentioned Hezekiah to you as one of the major people. You've got to know the son of Solomon's name was? Rehoboam. The son of Solomon's name was? Rehoboam. Rehoboam's father was? Solomon. Solomon's son was? Rehoboam. Now, there's a whole bunch of kings that come in their intervening chapters. We're not going to look at all those stories, but we are going to look at a couple people. And one of them is Hezekiah. Hezekiah is one of the few righteous kings in the south. Chapter 20, verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and you shall not recover. Keep your hand there and turn to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 38, verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, son of Amos, came to him and said, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall surely die. All right? When you read the prophet Isaiah, what are you going to do first, friends? You're going to go back and you're going to read his story in its historical context back in 2 Kings. Because if you don't know who Isaiah was and what his context was, and you don't realize that at this time, the northern ten tribes have just gotten completely rocked. It was during the time in the reign of Hezekiah that Assyria came down and conquered the north. You've got to know that to be able to read the prophet Isaiah. Context, context, context. Now keep your hand in Isaiah and turn back to 2 Kings. Okay, 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 16. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that, that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Keep your hand there. Isaiah chapter 39, verse 5. Chapter 39, verse 5. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of the host. Behold, the days are coming when all of your house and your household and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. When you read a prophet, or if you're saying to me the prophets are confusing, you've got to know where they fit into the story. If you read the book of Leviticus, where does it fit into the story, friends? Yeah, during what sin? The golden calf. When you're reading the book of Deuteronomy, where does it fit into the story? During the time of the Moabites, when they're standing just outside of the Holy Land. When you read the prophets, you've got to first find out when the prophet was preaching and to who they were preaching. And here you have the context. Oftentimes, oftentimes, like we saw in Hosea, oftentimes right, the first verses of the prophet will tell you the historical context. What king was reigning? at what time the prophet was speaking. And then you'll know what was going on at the time. Does that make sense? How many times have we read the prophets and gone, you've got to be kidding me. Now look, 
Here's the other thing you got to know. Keep your hand in 2 Kings. All of these prophets now, Jeremiah and Daniel and Hosea and all of these guys are not going to follow in exact chronological order. The prophets are put in your Bible from longest to shortest. It's not the New York Times. You can't just flip to the next book and expect the story to continue. So look, it's a very difficult time, and you've got to know that, that you're marching along in this historical story, and all of a sudden, you hit Leviticus, and it doesn't really continue the story, does it? It tells you some rules about the story. You get to the end of Numbers, and Deuteronomy fits in there. Now you get to First and Second Kings, mostly in Second Kings, and all of the prophets, like a star, like these old things, boom, 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 all of the prophets feed in right here. And so from this part in your Bible, for the most part, all the way to the New Testament, all of these prophets have to be read in that context. We're virtually, we are virtually at the time of the coming of Jesus Christ. Okay? We only have about 700, 600 years to go. And yet, look at how much of your Bible, put your, keep your hand in 2 Kings and turn to Matthew. Turn to the New Testament. Look at all of that. Fine, that's enough. Now turn back to 2 Kings. <laughs> all of that fits into that storyline, and you've got to read it in that context. Okay? Context, context, context. Repeat after me. A text without a context is no text at all. A text without a context is no text at all. And next time a non-Catholic pulls a verse out of thin air, you whack him over the head with your whole Bible. All right. We got to take a break. I know. I know. But I went long on my announcements and those don't count. <laughs> All right. Let's look just a few more verses. Okay. We're looking at 2 Kings chapter 22 now. Why is it that the prophet came to Hezekiah and says, look, dude, things are going south in a big way and you're about to be taken to Babylon. Why? Look at what happened. In chapter 22, this is the next king I want you to know. So you knew about Solomon, you knew about Rehoboam, you know about Hezekiah, and you know now about Josiah right here. Chapter 22, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. Not good. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. But guess what? In verse 2, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He walked in all the ways of his father David. Look to verse 8. Now, let me tell you the story. He says, look, we got to clean the temple. It's falling apart. So go take the money out of the treasury and pay the carpenters and go fix the house of the Lord. And so he sends his representative up there and look at verse 8. And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary who had gone up to tell him to do this. He says, I found a book of the law in the house of the Lord. You know, this is kind of like finding a Bible in a Catholic church. <laughs> and Hilkiah, I'm kidding, okay. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house, and they have delivered it into the hands of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord. And then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king, and when the king heard it, the books of the law, he rent his clothes. They had lost the sacred scriptures. That's how bad it had gotten. Look at verse, uh, chapter 23, verse 21. 
And the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in the book of the covenant, for no such Passover has been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel. Things had gotten really bad. They had walked away from the Lord, and that's exactly why they're about to get rocked by the Babylonians. The Babylonians rise to power. They conquer the Assyrians. And the Babylonians are going to come and they're going to march on Jerusalem. Turn with me to Jeremiah. Look at Jeremiah chapter 1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, the priest, who were in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, in whom the word of the Lord came in the days of? Aha! What do you think Jeremiah is about to experience? Josiah is realizing how bad things are. The prophecy has been given that they will be taken into Babylon. Jeremiah the prophet will see Jerusalem fall. All right? Take a look at chapter uh, 2, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Okay, The bride of God has become the harlot. And the harlot is about to be driven from the house of her master. Turn back to 2 Kings chapter 24. In the days of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jehoiakim, and Jehoiakim became his servant. Jehoiakim had become king of Judah. Remember, the north is gone now. He became his servant three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. If you rebel against the king of the empire, guess what he's going to do to you? Not too good. All right. Look at verse 8. Jehoiakim, this is his son, was 18 years old when he became king and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was so-and-so and the daughter of so-and-so of Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord to all that his father had done. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, the city, and besieged it. Verse 14, He carried away all of Jerusalem and all of the princes and all of the mighty men of valor. Chapter 25, verse 1, And Zedekiah, who then becomes king, and Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, in the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all of his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works against it round about. So the city was besieged till the eleventh month. Verse 7, They slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put the eyes of Zedekiah out and bound him in feathers and took him to Babylon. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, which was in the ninth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord and he took the people into exile. Now, flip back with me to Jeremiah. The last verse we'll do and then we'll take a break. Jeremiah chapter 40. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah when he took him bound in chains along with all the captives of Jerusalem and Judah who were being exiled to Babylon. So look, they burn Jerusalem. And guess who's there? Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah the prophet is bound in chains and he's led out. And on his way out of town, the captain of the guard turns to him and unlocks his chains and lets him go. He turns back and returns to Jerusalem. Turn your Bibles a couple pages to Lamentations. 
the Lamentations of Jeremiah. It's the next book, right there. And look at this verse. Jeremiah returns to Jerusalem. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She that was great among the nations. She that was a princess among the cities has become a vassal. She weeps bitterly in the night, tears of her cheeks among her lovers. She has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemy. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. Imagine Jeremiah the prophet coming over the hill and coming down the Mount of Olives and seeing the city sacked and burning. And he writes his lamentation. Okay? There. We're going to take a short break, like 15 seconds. So get up and go take a snack. Let's begin in the beginning. Adam. Adam's third son was Seth. And Seth's great-great-great-great-grandson's name was? Who walked with the Lord. And Enoch's great-grandson's name was? Noah. And Noah's son's name was? Receive the blessing? Shem. And Shem's great-great-great-great-grandson? Abraham. And Abraham's son? If you're just sitting there, guys, don't sit there. I'm not here to waste my time or yours. All right? Abraham's son's name was? Isaac, and Isaac's son's name? Jacob, and Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And Israel had how many sons? Twelve sons. And which one received the blessing? Judah had a son, and his name was? Perez, during the time of the Egyptian exile, right? And after the exodus, they come back in. After the time of the judges, we get a genealogy. In what book? Ruth. Right at the end there of Ruth. And we find out that Perez's great-great-grandson's name was? Boaz, and Boaz's great-grandson's name was? Jesse, and Jesse's son's name was? David, and David's son's name was? Solomon, and Solomon's son's name was? Rehoboam, and Rehoboam's great-great-great-great-grandson's name was? Hezekiah, Hezekiah, and we're not going to look at it, we just don't have the time, unfortunately, but Hezekiah builds a tunnel underneath Jerusalem because the spring of Gihon the only living spring out of Jerusalem was flowing out at the city of David. And the Assyrian army came and camped at the foot of the city where the water was pouring out. And Hezekiah the king says, well, we're not going to give them free water. And he cuts off the spring of Gihon and tunnels underneath the ground into the city of David to the pool of Siloam where the blind man was healed. And... If you're coming to the Holy Land, we're going to walk through Hezekiah's tunnel. 8th century B.C., one of the few historical marks left from that long ago, 8th century B.C., and we're going to walk with the waters of the spring of Gihon flowing over our knees. And we're going to come out of the tunnel after 20 to 30 minutes of walking in a stone tunnel underground, and we're going to walk into the spring and to the pool of Siloam. You want to get saved, let me tell you. <laughs> Woo! That's a lot of fun. It's an experience to just die for, let me tell you. Okay, what are we doing? They have now been taken into exile in Babylon. They spend 70 years in Babylon in exile. Okay? They pray to the Lord for return. They pray, they pray, they pray. And you remember from Deuteronomy... 
Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1. And when all of these things come upon you, the blessings and the curse, just listen, guys, don't turn it, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you return to the Lord your God, you and your children obey my voice and all that I command you this day with all of your heart and with all of your soul, then the Lord will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you. All right? They are in Babylon. They are in exile. And Babylon falls to the Persian Empire. And when the Persian Empire rises to power and conquers Babylon, the story picks up in 2 Chronicles. Now look, 1 and 2 Samuel, you know the story. 1 and 2 Kings, and then 1 and 2 Chronicles. 1 and 2 Chronicles tells the story of the tribe of Judah only. Whereas 1 and 2 Kings tells the story of both. So you don't have to read 1 and 2 Chronicles to get your history line. But right at the end of 2 Chronicles, you get a little interesting tidbit. Turn to the end of 2 Chronicles, chapter 36. The king that rises to take over Babylon, the Persian king that rises to power at this time and conquers Babylon and therefore conquers the people that are in exile, his name was Cyrus. Also known, some say he's the exact same king, Darius. But they could have been one king after another. It's hard to say. But anyways, verse 22, 36-22. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now guys, notice how amazing this is. This is a pagan king who does not know the God of Israel. And he rises to power. He discovers this inconsequential people living in one of the lands he's conquered. And notice what he does. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, in all his people, may the Lord and God be with him. Let him go free. God gives his grace to this pagan king. He converts him and he makes him an instrument of the salvation of the people. And after 70 years of exile, the people march out of Babylon, not only with the clothes on their back. Turn your page to Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And guess what he does? He gives them the gold to rebuild the house of the Lord. He sends them out with more money than they had come out of Jerusalem with. The stories then of Ezra and Nehemiah will bring us to the post-Babylonian period, which you've got to know now. Look, guys, what do you do when you're conquered by another people and you're a king? You go into hiding. 
And that's exactly what happens now in our story. We have followed the story all the way up through uh, Rehoboam, through Hezekiah, and through Josiah. What happened in Josiah? Remember, they found the book of the Lord in the temple? Okay? Josiah and the Babylonian exile. And suddenly the line of the kings goes dormant. And we lose, just like during the time of Moses, all these other great men start appearing on the scene, and yet we don't know who the king is. And they're going to remain dormant for the foreseeable future. All the way until we open the first page of the New Testament. Why? Because the people will return to the Holy Land, and yet they will still be under the thumb of a foreign ruler. But I want to point out a couple people, or one person in particular to you I want you to pay attention to. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Ezra continues our historical timeline for us. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel. Underline Zerubbabel in your story. You're going to want to know who Zerubbabel is. All right. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. When the seventh month came and the sons of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of God in Israel to offer burnt offerings upon it. Now, I want you to keep your hand there, and I want you to turn to the prophet Haggai. There's a problem when they return back to the Holy Land, guys. We're going to find out about it in the book of Haggai. Notice how short it is. If you haven't read Haggai, go home and read it. You can read it in two minutes. In the second year of Darius, Darius, as far as we know, may be another name for Cyrus, or it's possible that he's another king before or after Cyrus, regardless. In the second year of Darius, the king of the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel. Now, look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider how you have fared. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may appear in my glory, says the Lord. You have looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while you busy yourselves each with his own house. They had come back with an edict from Cyrus and money in their hands. And instead of going up to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, they went to their own homes to worry about their house. And look at what happens in verse 10. Therefore, the heavens above you have withdrawn the dew. What's going on? There's a drought. And the earth has withheld its produce. What's going on? Famine. They return to the land, and they return to famine and drought because of why? Because their bodies had left Babylon, but their hearts had not. Okay? Go back then to Ezra with me. Chapter 3, verse 10. Finally, and when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests, are you with me? 
The priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively. What does that mean? Antiphonally. You know how you sing back and forth in the church? Huh? It goes back to the earliest days. Sing responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites, the heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, they had lived through the whole exile. They had seen the temple before it was burned. They wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundations of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy. You can imagine, right? The young men are, yeah, finally, we're taking it back. We're rebuilding the temple. And the old men say, you fools, you don't know what you've lost. And so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard from afar. All right. Turn then to your next book, which is Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah are both men who return from Babylon. And in chapter 9, verse 36, we follow the timeline then. They wept at the sight of the temple. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that thou gavest to our fathers to enjoy its fruits and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. So notice, They have left Babylon, but the problems are not resolved. They will remain now in virtual slavery for the future. Why? Look at Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 5. Not only did they refuse to build the house of the Lord. Look at chapter 13. We'll just look at a few verses. Look at verse, you can read the whole chapter on your own, but look at verse 10. Nehemiah says, I found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. The tithes. You know, Catholics, the tithes hadn't been given to the priests, to the church. Huh? God cares that we give the first fruits to Him. The tithes had not been given. Verse 15, In those days I saw in Judah men treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on asses and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them, What is this evil thing which you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Look at verse 23. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah. Look at verse 29. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. All right? What's the problem? Simply said, sin. And they continue to struggle in this way. In the year 334, the Persians will eventually rise to power. And I need you then to turn to 1 Maccabees. Notice, guys, we're right before the New Testament now. After Alexander, the son of Philip. Who's Alexander? The great, yeah. After Alexander, the son of Philip the Macedonian, who came from the land of Ketim, had defeated Darius, the king of the Persians, and the Medes, he succeeded him as king. 
He had previously become the king of Greece. Yeah, I'm sorry. The Persians, of course, had risen to power and Cyrus had released the Jews from slavery. And now Greece will rise to power. Now, if you know anything about Alexander the Great, he's one of the the most successful men who has ever led an army on the face of the earth. He rose to power as a very young man. And in a few short years, he marched south and conquered virtually the entire known world into India, into the gates of China. It is said that his military saw elephants for the first time. You can imagine these men from Greece marching and marching and marching to places unknown, to people they couldn't even conceive of, and seeing elephants and conquering the armies. And as a very young man, we get his story here, verse 2, he fought many battles, conquered strongholds, and put to death the kings of the earth. He advanced to the ends of the earth and plundered many nations. And when the earth became quiet before him, he was exalted, and his heart was lifted up. He gathered a very strong army and ruled over countries, nations, and princes, and they became tributary to him. After this, he fell sick and perceived that he was dying. He had just won a battle. Do you know how old he was? 33 years old. He was in the prime of his life. He had just won a battle and he fell sick. Verse 6. So he summoned his most honored officers who had been brought up with him from youth and divided his kingdom among them while he was still alive. And after Alexander had reigned 12 years, he died. Then his officers began to rule each in his own place. They all put on crowns after his death, and so did their sons after them for many years. And they caused many evils on the earth. From them came forth a sinful root, Antiochus Epiphanes, the son of Antiochus the king. He had been hostage in Rome, and he began to reign in the 137th year of the kingdom of the Greeks. In those days, lawless men came forth from Israel and misled many, saying, Let us go and make a covenant with the Gentiles round about us. For since we separated from them, many evils have come upon us. This proposal pleased them, and some of the people eagerly went to the king, and he authorized them to observe the ordinances of the Gentiles. So they built a gymnasium in Jerusalem according to the Gentile custom and removed the marks of circumcision. Now, I don't know how you remove the marks of circumcision, but and abandoned his holy covenant. They joined with the Gentiles and sold themselves to do evil. And not good. Not good at all. Verse 16. And when Antiochus saw that his kingdom was established, he determined to become king of the land of Egypt, that he might reign over the kingdoms. He marches south and conquers. And in verse 20, when subduing Egypt... Antiochus returned to the, in the 143rd year and he went up against Israel and came to Jerusalem with a strong force. He arrogantly entered the sanctuary and took the golden altar and lampstand for light and all of its utensils. He took also the table for the bread of the presence and the cups for drink offerings and bowls and golden censers and curtains and crowns and gold decorations on the front of the temple. He stripped it all off. He took the silver, gold, and the costly vessels. Verse 30. Deceitfully, he spoke a peaceable words to them, and they believed him. But he suddenly fell upon the city and dealt a severe blow to it and destroyed many of the people. Verse 36. 
in Jerusalem. It became an ambush against the sanctuary, an evil adversary of Israel continually. On every side of the sanctuary, they shed innocent blood. They even defiled the sanctuary because of them, and the residents of Jerusalem fled. Verse 41. Then the king wrote to his whole kingdom that all should be one people and that each should give up his customs. All the Gentiles accepted the command of the king and many even from Israel gladly adopted his religion. They sacrificed to idols and profaned the Sabbath. Verse 56. The books of the law which they found, they tore to pieces and burned with fire. Where the book of the covenant was found in the possession of anyone, if anyone had adhered to the law, the decree of the king condemned him to death. Verse 62. But many in Israel stood firm and were resolved in their hearts not to eat unclean food. They chose to die rather than to profane the holy covenant, and they did die. And very great wrath came upon Israel. In those days, Mattathias, the son of John, son of Simeon, a priest of the sons of Joarib, moved from Jerusalem and settled in Moedin. He had five sons. And he gives the five sons. And notice one of their names. Verse 4, Judas called Maccabeus. Okay, the Maccabees. He saw the blasphemes being committed in Judah and Jerusalem and said, Alas, why was I born to see this? The ruin of my people, the ruin of the holy city. Look at verse 14. And Matthias and his sons rent their clothes and put on sackcloth and mourned greatly. Then the king's officers who were enforcing the apostasy came to the city of Moedin to make them offer sacrifice. And many from Israel came to them. And Matthias and his sons were assembled. Then the king's officers spoke to Matthias as follows. You are a leader, honored and great in your city and supported by his sons and brothers. Now be the first to come and do what the king commands as all the Gentiles and the men of Judah and those that are left in Jerusalem have done. Then you and your sons will be numbered among the friends of the king and you and your sons will be honored with silver and gold and many gifts. But Matthias answered and said in a loud voice, Even if all the nations that live under the rule of the king obey him and have chosen to do his commandments, departing each one from the religion of his fathers, yet I and my sons and my brothers will live by the covenant of our fathers. Verse 23. When he had finished speaking these words, a Jew came forward in the sight of all to offer sacrifice upon the altar in Moedin according to the king's command. When Matthias saw it, he burned with zeal and his heart was stirred. He gave vent to his righteous anger. He ran and killed him upon the altar. At the same time, he killed the king's officer who was forcing them to sacrifice and he tore down the altar. Thus, he burned with zeal for the law as Phineas did against Zimri, the sons of Salu. We skipped that story. Then Matthias cried out in the city with a loud voice saying, Let everyone who is zealous for the law and supports the covenant come out with me. They begin the Maccabean revolt. In chapter 2, Mattathias dies and Judas, Maccabeus, becomes the leader. In chapter 3, verse 17, But when they saw the army coming to meet them, they said to Judas, How can we few as we are fight against so great and so strong a multitude? And we are faint for we have eaten nothing today. And Judas replied, It is easy for many to be hemmed in by a few. For in the sight of heaven, there is no difference between saving by many or by few. He goes out with his small band. He crushes the Syrian army. And in chapter 4, verse 36, Then 
said Judas and his brothers, Behold, our enemies are crushed. Let us go up to cleanse the sanctuary and dedicate it. So all the army assembled and they went up to Mount Zion, which is one of the hills of Jerusalem, and they saw the sanctuary desolate and the altar profaned and the gates burned. And they took it back. They cleansed the temple and restored sacrifices to the temple. But there's a problem. Isn't this our story? <laughs> Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Now Judas heard of the fame of the Romans. The Romans are now rising to power. That they were very strong and were well disposed towards all who made an alliance with them. What had God said about making covenants with the nations around you? Don't do it. Okay. In chapter 9, one of the sons of Mattathias, John, Judas is eventually killed in battle. And John takes over. And John takes the name Hyrcanus. He extends the Maccabean frontier south and conquers the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, and force circumcises the men. Herod, who we're going to meet very shortly, Herod was an Edomite. And the reason he was also a Jew was because the Maccabees had forced circumcised the men. Okay? Not a good idea. It's like forced baptizing people. We don't do that. Or at least we shouldn't. One of John's sons takes over, marches north, and conquers Galilee. Now Galilee is in the north. What do we know about the north, guys? Are they Jews? Well, no, they're kind of half-breeds, aren't they? Right. He goes up and he conquers the north, and he conquers the whole area of Galilee, This isn't too far before the coming of our Lord. And remember, our Lord will go up and His primary ministry will be in Galilee. And what do the people of Jerusalem think of the Galileans? Not too good. There's question who they really are. And so there's Jews now living in the north because of the Maccabean conquest. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Now when Jonathan, again, another son of the Maccabees, when Jonathan saw... The time was favorable for him. He chose men and sent them to Rome to confirm and renew the friendship with them. Look at chapter 14, verse 16. It was heard in Rome and as far away as Sparta that Jonathan had died and they were deeply grieved when they heard that Simon, his brother, another one of the Maccabees, had become high priest in his place and that he was ruling over the countries and cities of it, they wrote to him in bronze tablets to renew with him the friendship and alliance which they had established with Judas and Jonathan, his brother. So again, continually entering into a covenant with a foreign power instead of being faithful to their own covenant. It would be John's two nephews who would eventually fight over the throne in Jerusalem. The older brother, John of the Maccabees, ends up having two nephews who are to inherit the throne in Jerusalem. The older brother states that he doesn't want to become king. And just as his younger brother is about to be enthroned, he says, I do want to become king after all. Okay, two brothers fighting over the throne. At this time, the Roman general Pompey was encamped in Syria. Now, where is Syria from the Holy Land? Just north, right? Pompey was encamped in Syria. 
And the two brothers flee Jerusalem and they go to Pompey and beg. And they beg the general to declare them king, the one, each one of them wanting it. Pompey, in wisdom, says, take it easy. Let's sleep it over the night. In the middle of the night, the older brother flees the camp, heads back to Jerusalem, and closes up the gates. What do you think Pompey's going to do? He raises his army. They march on Jerusalem. And Dr. Carroll tells us this, that after a three-month siege, they finally broke in on a Sabbath, killing 12,000 defenders who fought right up to the altar of sacrifice itself. When at last the carnage ended, Pompey stood facing the mysterious black-curtained cube, the Holy of Holies, containing he knew not what. Pompey walked up to the Holy of Holies and drew aside the curtain, the first Gentile to touch it since the profanations of Antiochus Epiphanes 101 years before. Within it, he saw nothing. The stone tablets of the Ten Commandments inscribed in Sinai, which had once been there enshrined in the Ark of the Covenant, had long since disappeared, lost in the Babylonian sack over half a millennium before. In all probability, Pompey knew nothing of them. Did this strange people worship only a void? We do not know what he saw and what he did not see in the temple. But he ordered the sacrifices resumed confirmed Hyrcanus, the younger brother, as high priest and ethnarch, but not king, and prepared for his return to Rome. Like Cyrus before him, God touched him with grace, and he declared the temple in Jerusalem to be saved and the sacrifices to be resumed. We enter now into the intertestamental time period. After the story of the Maccabees, and before the coming of Christ. The younger brother, Hyrcanus, he was a weak leader. And his counselor, Antipater, ruled through him. Antipater had a son, and Antipater was murdered. Some say poisoned to death by his son. His son's name? Herod. Herod ruled in his father's stead. And it wasn't long before he left the city of Jerusalem, fled to Rome, and begged to be made king, which he was. Herod begins to rebuild the temple. Herod ends up marrying the granddaughter of that younger brother who had been declared king in Jerusalem to establish his throne. Eventually, in 9 BC, Herod would attack a nearby tribe of Arabs and lose the confidence of Rome. He would be left in place a much weaker man. It was during Herod's time that he decided to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Why do you think Herod would want to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem? Who is the only one who has the right to rebuild the temple? Ah, the son of David, the Messiah. 
I'll read you a quotation from Dr. Carroll. This is Herod's uh, arrival in Rome. It says, He arrived at a moment opportune beyond his highest expectations. Antony and Octavian were in full agreement that the Parthians must promptly be expelled from the Roman East and then as soon as possible conquered in their homeland. Who better to aid them in a Parthian war than this man who had suffered so much at Parthian hands? Antony had met Herod in Syria after a battle in Philippi and had been impressed by his ability. Octavian remembered the great service of Herod's father Antipater had rendered to Julius Caesar when he was gravely imperiled in Alexandria. Since Rome's arrival in Palestine, the Hasmonean dynasty in Judea, the Maccabees, had shown itself again and again to be hostile or incompetent or both. For all these reasons, Antony and Octavian decided, contrary to their usual Roman policy with client kingdoms, to reject the established dynasty in Judea altogether and sent Herod the penniless suppliant back to Jerusalem as king of the Jews. While Augustus was settling the empire as he had settled Rome, Herod was building a new temple in Jerusalem. Herod never really understood the Jewish faith he professed, into which his recent ancestors had been brought by compulsion. But he was anxious to demonstrate how splendidly he honored all its outward symbols, and he was a great builder. He replaced the smaller structure built by the returned exiles from Babylon in the time of King Darius I, Cyrus, with what he claimed to be an exact replica of Solomon's temple but which actually seems to have been much larger and taller than the original. Surrounded by much enlarged outer courts and resting upon an immense stone platform, it towered over Jerusalem to a height of no less than 450 feet from the top of its highest pinnacle to the bottom of the Kedron Canyon below the city. Herod's version of Solomon's famous temple porch was five times the width of the original and dropped sheer for a great distance on three sides. The whole structure was a fantastic tour de force and must have presented a most startling appearance, more like a modern skyscraper than any known building of antiquity. No expense was spared in the materials of the structure or in its decoration. It was built after the manner of many Syrian temples. Josephus gives the typical dimensions of a single block, 45 by six by five cubits. The stone employed with a brilliant white marble. Josephus compares the general aspect of the building seen at a distance to a mountain covered with snow. The east front of the holy place was plated with gold, which reflected the rays of the rising sun with dazzling splendor. The great folding doors of the holy place were likewise plated with gold. Across them was drawn a magnificent embroidered veil whose four colors typified the four elements. Over the doorway hung a giant golden vine, replacing that which Aristobulus had given to Pompey, whose clusters were as large as a man. Turn your Bibles a few pages. It is into this scene that Jesus Christ would be born. The Gospel of Matthew, the first book of your New Testament. Matthew starts a few generations late. Adam's third son was? And Seth's great-great-great-grandson's name was? Enoch. Enoch. And Enoch's great-great-grandson's name was? 
Noah, and Noah's oldest son, who received the blessing's name was Shem, and Shem's great, 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 great grandson's name was? Open your Bibles. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. As I read this to you, my friends, let those pictures, those stories pop into your mind. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah was the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, that's his daughter-in-law, and Perez the father of Hezron. You remember this little genealogy from the book of Ruth. The Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab, the father of Nation, and Nation, the father of Solomon, and Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Huh? It reminds them of what he did. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. You remember Rehoboam? The father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asa. These are the guys we skipped in First and Second Kings, okay? And Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, who built that tunnel. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. What happened during the time of Josiah? Remember, they found the law. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah. And Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. You remember, Jeremiah goes with them. And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. And Shealtiel, the father of... Zerubbabel. Now, the next few verses you will read for the first time because it is here that we find out that genealogy that goes underground during the time after the Babylonian exile under the control of the Persians and the Greeks and finally the Romans. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abud, and Abud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim of Azor, and the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph. Do you think Joseph knew who he was? Absolutely. A humble man doing his job, keeping his head down, just like the kings during the time of the exile in Egypt, so that when the day came that God would act, he would use that man who had placed himself humbly at the will of God, and through him, the kingship of God, the line of the people and the sons of God would be restored. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the King. Jesus Christ is the rightful heir to the throne of Adam. He is the rightful heir to the throne of Seth and of Enoch and of Noah and of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah and Perez and Boaz. Help me out, friends. <laughs> and, and Jesse 
and David and Solomon and Rehoboam and Hezekiah and Josiah and Zerubbabel and Joseph and Jesus Christ. For those that have been here for the last three weeks, I promised you when we began that you would be able to do that. To walk from Adam and Eve to Jesus Christ. To watch the line of the sons of God from the beginning of the world to its fulfillment in the one who would receive the throne of David, who would stand with the scepter of Judah. You remember from Genesis chapter 49, whose throne would remain forever. Amen? Amen. All right. I will only say this about the New Testament. I will only say this, that most of our time we have spent together over the last few weeks have been to put things in their proper order. You know the gospel story very well. The next time we get confused is usually in the writings of St. Paul. Where do those writings all fit into the story? There's a very easy answer to that. They fit into the story of Acts of the Apostles, just like the prophets fit into the story of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. Right? They plug in. You will read again and again in the writings of Saint Paul the stories of him visiting the very communities that he will write to later. So turn with me very quickly. And I only do this one time as an example. Acts chapter 17. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now, if you're going to read the epistle to the Thessalonians, what are you going to do, my friends? Go back to Acts of the Apostles and read the historical context. If you're going to read about Ephesians, go back to Acts of the Apostles when he visits Ephesus and find out what happens there. If you're going to read the story to the Corinthians, when he visits Corinth, you've got to go and read it. So before you read all of the epistles of St. Paul, you're going to read Acts. Because a text without a context is no text at all. A text without a context is no text at all. Let's finish with this. Adam and Eve's third son's name was? Seth. Seth. And Seth's great-great-grandson's name was? Enoch. And Enoch walked with God, and he was taken. And Enoch's great-great-grandson's name was? Noah. And Noah's sons that received the blessing's name was? Shem. And Shem's great-great-great-great-great-grandson's name was? Abraham. And say it with me, guys. Don't fall asleep. And Abraham's son's name was? Isaac. And Isaac's son? And his name was changed to? And he had how many sons? And the son that received the blessing's name was? Judah. And Judah's son's name was? Perez. And Perez's great-great-great-grandson's name was? Boaz. And Boaz's great-grandson's name was? Jesse. And Jesse's son's name was? David. And David's son's name was? Solomon. And Solomon's son's name was? Rehoboam, and you know what Rehoboam did, and it was not so good, and the schism that took place between the north and the south. 
And Rehoboam's great, 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 great grandson's name was that built the conduit, the, the tunnel underneath Jerusalem, Hezekiah. And Hezekiah's great, great, great grandson's name was Josiah, who found the, the law, right? They, they lost it. And Josiah's great, 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 great grandson's, after the Babylonian exile's name was Zerubbabel. Remember Zerubbabel in the book of Ezra? And Zerubbabel's great, 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 great grandson's name was Joseph. And Joseph's son's name was Jesus, who is the anointed, rightful heir to the throne of Adam. And in Jesus, the king, paradise is given back. And in the middle of paradise, God planted a tree. And hanging upon that tree was the fruit from which Adam and Eve would eat and live forever. And Jesus Christ willingly was crucified upon the cross. And he says to us, eat and you will live forever. God bless you. All right. For those that want to stay around, you can. You're not allowed to ask me any questions I don't know the answer to. I just told you everything I know. (laughs) (laughs) Questions? My question is about uh, Joseph. Since Jesus is his stepson and not his natural son, how does that work as far as... (laughs) Because in the Jewish tradition, an adopted son has 100% full rights to receive the inheritance of his father. Okay? Not to mention that he's the second person of the Holy Trinity. <laughs> that helps his case tremendously. <laughs> no, but uh, regardless, he is uh, the son of Joseph. By, yes, by adoption, but he is the son of Joseph. Okay? By the tradition of the Jews. By the law of the Jews. So, okay. I don't hear you talking about the instruction how to build the temple by Solomon. I didn't deal with the instruction on how to build it. Like Noah, he got the instruction from God how to build the ark. Yes. So did the Solomon get the instruction how to build the temple at all? Yes, that's right there. We were looking at it in um, First Kings. First Kings. And that's where most people like give up, like 35 cubits this way and 65 cubits. Oh, Lord, have mercy. And who's going to read that, right? But there in the middle of it is this beautiful description of the Holy of Holies, this golden garden. And also the instruction right there in 2 Kings about what the high priest is supposed to do when he enters the Holy of Holies once a year. He's supposed to do two things, and two things only in Hebrew, to Avad and Shamar. To till and to keep it. Huh? Who else received that instruction? Adam in the beginning. The high priest is told in Hebrew to do the exact same thing that Adam was to do. The high priest entering into the Holy of Holies was like a gardener in a golden garden. Paradise restored. Okay? Do the Jews that are living right now know which tribe they belong to? 
I'm going to go out a limb and say some of them do. Do all of them know or all of them care? No. I want to give a caveat, by the way. I'm glad you asked that question. This is not really to your point. I talked a lot about Israel's rightful inheritance. Please do not misconstrue what I said about the rightful inheritance of the biblical Israel with the situation that we have today in the Holy Land. Okay? Jesus Christ came to give us back that which we had in the beginning which is that the family of God would extend beyond one tribe, beyond one nation, and beyond one land, as he says in the Gospel of John, in chapter 4, verse 23. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such the Father seeks to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. When He comes, He will show us all things. And Jesus said, I who speak to you am He. In fact, I should have started for a few verses earlier where He says, neither in this mountain or in Jerusalem will we worship. Okay? So, I would recommend to you a book. If you want to know about the situation as it stands today, a book written by that very archbishop that I hope is going to be coming later on in the year. And he's going to be speaking on the same topic of his book. His book is called Blood Brothers. His name is Archbishop Elias Shakur. And uh, I highly recommend it to you. All right, listen. I'll say one last thing before you leave. Don't let Macy's be your Christmas gift on Christmas morning. And the way you deal with that is very simple. You say no to what the world wants to sell you, and yes to what the church wants to sell you. It's that simple. The time of Advent is traditionally a time of fasting, a time of preparation very much like Lent. But the church doesn't say, I have to. No, and you don't have to love God either. If you want to grow in your relationship, in love with another person, that love is never something that is forced. It is something you want. Fasting is an affront to modern egocentric materialism. If you want to battle Santa Claus, fast. And when all of those great parties are presented to you before the feast, say thank you, but no thank you. And when the feast comes and everyone else throws their Christmas trees on the curb on Christmas morning or Christmas afternoon, as you've seen, you will be feasting like you've never feasted before. Spend the next few weeks reading your Bible Read some of those stories that maybe you thought I didn't know that before. Read about God's wonderful works in the Old Testament and how He began to prepare His people for the coming of the One who would bring us back to paradise. God bless you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. 
If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.